0: Hi, everybody. Welcome to Ocean Science Radio. On this episode, you might notice things are slightly different, but that's in honor of World Oceans Day, the annual event that highlights and celebrates our oceans. I'm Andrew Kornblatt, gunslinger for the ocean and conservation, and I'm joined today by Naomi Hi, Frances Faribault.
1: Hi, Francis. here. I am a PhD candidate studying the behavioral ecology of sharks. I'm also an aquanaut and a truly hopeless nerd. And we're here to talk about ocean stuff.
0: Woo! Ocean stuff.
1: Ocean science. Radio! we have to do our awkward. We should do oh, yeah. our awkward. Unsynced ocean science radio.
0: One, two, three. Ocean, ocean science, science radio. radio. Oh, that was oh, so weird. Yeah. <laughs> the if joys of remote recording together. So June 8th is World Oceans Day, and it is an event that brings together not only the ocean science and conservation community across the world, but it also brings together any ocean enthusiast who is just interested in all things blue. And to celebrate that, we thought that we would go over a couple of stories from the last year that were interesting, that were cool, that were funny, or just plain weird. I brought together a couple of different stories, and Francis, you had a chance to look at them. Uh, of them, was there any that kind of, like, stood out to you that you really wanted to cover?
1: I mean, Bodie McBoatface.
0: Oh, yeah, Bodie McBoatface. So you remember when, like, Bodie McBoatface started, right? Like, that whole thing?
1: Yes, I do. Uh, I remember, Like,
0: the background of Bodie McBoatface?
1: I remember being a young person thinking, why would a government agency open up... <laughs> Like, why would they put another option in this contest? Because it's the internet and it's going to go terribly wrong. Oh, yeah. And it sort of did and it didn't. Like, it went wrong in the most charming way possible, which is the name that got number one was Bodie McBoatface.
0: Yeah. So just like as a little bit of background for those who might not know, Bodie McBoatface, McBo- having trouble saying it. You know, back in 2016, the British government basically launched – This two hundred and eighty seven million dollar polar research ship and opened it up to crowdsource name options. And the winner that was voted upon by the crowd was Bodie McBoatface and the British government was like, "Eh, nah, we're not going to do that. But what they did do is they actually named this remote operated vehicle Bodie McBoatface to kind of give a little bit of head nod to the interested people who voted on it and got shafted. And in 2017, it, that new, you know, submersible ROV was launched. But last year, it actually made this huge climate change discovery on, on this maiden voyage. And really what it was looking at was how the Arctic winds were linked to higher sea temperatures that's fueling this cycling and cooling event. And it's just this, you know, weird thing to be reading this story that Bodie McBoatface made an awesome climate discovery.
1: Absolutely. And to, to be more specific, so basically how this works is the, the ROV, Bodie McBoatface. so much joy to say.
0: Oh, it's so fun to say that. Ah,
1: It's just, just a wholesome delight. Maps, the sort of the physics of how this turbulence in the water moves. And this is really important because climate models incorporate these currents. And a lot of times, upper layers of the ocean don't mix with the lower layers instantly or readily. Sometimes that mixing of the warmer air that's exposed to the atmosphere and the cold, dense, deeply submerged layers of water can take a really long time to mix. And so what the discovery was, basically, there is a connection to the winds blowing over the top of the ocean that affects that mixing. And that insight was key to sort of updating climate models and actually shows that we are going to probably warm the oceans faster because of that mixing process.
0: Yeah, and that kind of leads us to some of the you know more... I don't want to say depressing, but sobering news. I mean, it's Boat not
1: as it's not as delightful and charming as Bodie McBoatface.
0: Oh, totally. Um, or the thought of Sir, you know, David Attenborough, you know, launching the ship that is named by the public, Bodie McBoatface, but the government named after him, you know, all the while knowing like that's actually Bodie McBoatface. But yeah, the sobering news is that you know the deep oceans, which for a very long time scientists seem to think were. You know, so far away and uh, distant to surface issues and surface temperature that the concept of them not only heating, but having like an accelerated heating than what we were originally expected. It came as quite a shock. And this tiny ROV, Bodie McBoatface, gave them a completely new way of looking at the deep ocean. But yeah, it was, it it got quite a bit of press and, uh, you know, and I'm sure you get this too, Francis, that whenever you see the name Bodie McBoatface, a smile comes to your face.
1: Absolutely. It's charming and wholesome. And if you haven't seen Bodie McBoatface, I mean, the research vessel is kind of what you would imagine. It's a large sort of big red vessel, but Bodie McBoatface is this tiny little yellow submarine thing. So it's charming. In both its name and its aesthetic, just its whole aesthetic is super charming. But of course, the discovery that it made is slightly sobering, as it adds to our understanding of uh, exactly how we are changing our planet.
0: Oh yeah. Well, thank you, Bodie McBoatface, for doing the hard work and bringing us the news that we might not necessarily want to hear. But uh, you know, big high hopes for new discoveries that lead to solutions in uh, 2020 and beyond.
1: Speaking uh, of new discoveries.
0: Ooh, yeah.
1: So there is a new species of tiny sharks that were discovered, colloquially known as pocket sharks because they've got a little pocket in their thing where they have a bioluminescent material. So they, not only are these new tiny sharks, they are new tiny glowing sharks.
0: So it's not because I can put these things in my pocket.
1: Um, I mean, they're pretty small, like you probably could <laughs> A male pocket or a female pocket?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking about the pocket in my shirt, but so these pocket sharks are part of this whole interesting evolutionary tactic or byproduct of the ocean where things are not only bioluminescent but also biophosphorescent. And with these pocket sharks, if I understand it correctly, they actually will like kind of shoot out a little cloud of bioluminescent material out of these pockets is that right
1: yeah so they have these little glands called pocket glands near the front of their fins and they secrete a glowing fluid from there and basically in the deep ocean where there is no light a light often attracts prey or predators because most actually about something around like 90 percent of Organisms in the deep ocean do have some kind of bioluminescence, so it's like a setting up a signal fly, right? Ooh, there's something over there. Uh, and things will go and check it out, and this little tiny predator will, will be waiting, and then can stealthily attack the things that are attracted to this bioluminescent secretion, which is, at least that's the idea.
0: sneaky. Sneaky. Yeah, the predation's tactics of these sharks are super cool, and envisioning them, like if you look at the pictures of them, they seem pretty tiny. Like, would you say that that's re- relatively accurate? Like the photos that I've seen are, are of samples that are being held in hands and stuff like that, and they all look kind of tiny.
1: Yes, easily fit into your hand mm-hmm. size.
0: Or my pocket.
1: I've got the women's jeans with the tiny pockets that don't uh, hold anything. So we, we can could... do better with our pockets, people.
0: Yeah, we could totally turn this into a why uh, fashion is unfair to women podcast, Um, but... I'm just saying
1: I want enough space to fit a shark in my pocket. I don't think that's too much to ask.
0: (laughs) No, that's never too much to ask. We should all be able to... It's our God-given right to be able to walk around with uh, enough space in our pockets to hold sharks. Going back to how these things actually hunt, like the images that I see, like from Noah or from, you know, the various news articles about this thing, when it's pushing this bioluminescent gunk out of its pockets, like the pockets are by its, uh, uh, by its, what are those called? The, the side fins. Um, not the, not the dorsal fin, but the fins on either side.
1: Uh, okay. Should I give you a hit here?
0: <laughs> yes, please.
1: What the, what's the thing that Terry Crews can do with his muscles? Where he makes his chest go move. What are those muscles called?
0: Pecs? Pectoral? Pectoral There you go. Yay! Thank you. you. COVID brain. So these pockets are right by the pectoral fins. And the images I see that either are, I don't know if these are artist renditions or or what have you, but it looks super psychedelic. So it looks like a base shark releasing space debris out of its pockets and it's going to go on a psychedelic journey hunting the animals that that try to eat it
1: i mean it glows so sure <laughs> <laughs> i guess that depends on your definition of psychedelic
0: oh totally i mean i i just can't get over how not only how many shark species there are out there but like again these type of glowing aspects like did you hear going off of uh, away from the list did you hear about these sharks that actually will glow green in like black light and uv light david gruber who we've had on the show before but specifically on what was called squishy robot fingers for sample collection what have you just published this study that he was he was working on for a very long time about the, these, these shark species that will glow. and it comes from a tiny little molecules called metabolites. And we don't know why they do this. I you know I have no idea what evolutionary advantage a shark would have from being able to you know have bio, biofluorescence. But you know, again, there's this weird cool psychedelic party happening with these sharks.
1: So just to get a little broader with it, I think we as both scientists and the general public sometimes make the mistake of, because we see the world through a very human lens, to sort of attribute that to other organisms. But the range... Of light that is visual to human beings is not necessarily the same range of visual light that is available to other organisms. Some organisms see less, some see more. Some can see into the UV and ultraviolet spectrum. UV and ultraviolet, just those those, those are the same thing, Francis. Mm
0: -hmm. Interesting.
1: God would (laughs) rain. Anyhow, guys, we're in quarantine and we're just. (laughs)
0: Talking about ocean stories. Talking
1: about ocean stories. Anyhow, so trying to understand how other organisms perceive the world can sometimes lead to this really big shift in sort of how we think about these organisms in general. So just because we don't see things in the, for instance, in the UV spectrum doesn't mean that those aren't important signals for other organisms.
0: Yeah. And one of the things that the study seems to find, I, I mean, they already knew that the from what I've read, again, I'm not, I'm not an expert on the subject, but from what I've read, Gruber and his team talk about how sharks can see in the spectrum. But the study, what the study actually, the big thing was that it discovered these molecules as to why these sharks are able to have, you know, various striations and patterns that are, you take a black light down to darkest parts of the ocean and it's like a, it's a crazy party.
1: Absolutely. The world is weird and wonderful and strange and that's why I like to study it. Mm. I mean, the photos of this are, are gorgeous.
0: Like, did you see the um, the actual close-up of the fin and the scales? Or wh- whatever you call it in the uh, shark In area? sharks,
1: they're called dermal denticles.
0: Thank you. You're yeah. welcome. Dermal denticles?
1: Yes, indeed. Uh, so that, I mean, you get the little phosphorescent patterns.
0: Well, I mean, this is leading me to the belief that eventually we will be able to Look at the DNA that's involved here, and you know, possibly even the DNA involved in chromatophores in cephalopods. And maybe someday I will be able to inject myself with something that allows me to have cool, random changing skin that glows in the dark.
1: Uh, sure, Don't I mean, prob- my probably not. But here, here, I'll give you some hope though GFP, which is green fluorescent protein, mm-hmm. um, is already used actively all the time in all sorts of research.
0: Is that the stuff that they put in ice cream?
1: Uh, GFP is green fluorescent protein. It comes from jellyfish. And what it does is it fluoresces under UV light. So it's used a lot in like medical research. So if you want to isolate like a certain type of cell group, so for instance, if you're studying cancer and you want to see just the cancerous cells, you're going to use this in genetic research so you can highlight the specific cell groups that you want to look look at there's a bunch of other applications and i'm definitely not an expert but if you're interested yeah green green fluorescent protein has been actively used for a really long time (laughs) in research so making things glow is super helpful
0: i will say that i did look it up and apparently there is a place where at least back in 2016 you could go and buy a $220 scoop of ice cream that uses this protein to glow in the dark.
1: I mean that's steep Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) for a thing of ice cream but yeah it does glow. Yeah. It would do. It would make the the ice cream glow.
0: Alright so we've talked a bit about ocean weirdness. There was a lot that came out in 2019 that was a bit weird on the ocean. We already talked about the pocket shark. There were the sunfish that went crazy in Santa Barbara that were huge. But, you know, if we're turning it back to other pretty interesting stories, one thing that kind of pushed me was looking at the ocean as, you know, a source of food for billions of people across the world. We all know that fisheries in general, are in a bit of a dire strait here and there when it comes to over extraction by industrial fishing, and that fish farming has issues when it comes to waste and the feed for those fish. But for those who are familiar with the company Impossible Foods,
1: with the Impossible Burger, which, by the way, I tried recently.
0: Yeah, what'd you think?
1: It doesn't. It doesn't taste like a.
0: Yeah, I know. Um, really,
1: I was, I mean, it just tastes like a slightly better version of a or like a fake burger. Yeah. However, that said, I, so I'm going to stick with my standbys if I want to like have a hamburger but not have a hamburger, which is, I, I really do like a black bean burger or a portobello mm. mushroom burger. I'm sticking with them until it gets a little bit better.
0: (laughs) Trader Joe's has a really good quinoa burger, actually, that's, like, phenomenal. Uh, And it has some black bean protein in it, too. But for the Impossible Burger, like, I can actually see this, you know, for the Impossible Burger burger, you know, I've always looked at it as, like, hey, we could replace all of McDonald's burgers and, you know, Burger King's burgers with Impossible Burgers. And most people probably wouldn't be able to tell because of how they're cooked. Apparently, in 2019, they went from burgers to fish. And now that you know they're looking at alternatives for com- commercially fished seafood, seafood commercially fish <laughs> commercially fished seafood, like there's other fast food and uh, you know impactful foods that could be replaced by this plant-based protein. And I just thought that was a pretty cool piece of of progress when it comes to the way that we feed ourselves.
1: Absolutely. And it's one of the more important things if you're thinking about just breaking down the math on carbon footprints, how you eat changes that quite drastically because Mm -hmm. eating is an agricultural act and agriculture has significant impacts on our climate and our environment. Um, And one of the bigger outputs of carbon is just feeding livestock and the carbon they produce and just for the energetics of how many people you can feed from things lower down on the trophic level because you anytime taking a basic biology class you should know that anytime you move up a trophic level or up a link in a food chain you lose most of that energy just to growth and just the chaos of the universe
0: (laughs) Yeah. It's something like the the amount of grain alone that it takes to feed the amount of cattle that we uh, use in our agriculture is this staggering number that could feed the world like three times over or something like that.
1: It's quite high. So you lose 90% of the the energy. So it doesn't get passed on the food chain. So if you break that down, that's a really important way to think about how we use our environment. So cutting down on the amount of meat that you eat is really helpful.
0: Well, I mean, you know, talking about that in 2019, some of the stories like talked about how like the North Sea cod stocks fell to critical levels, how, you know, Alaska was looking at its uh, fisheries and aquaculture and how that was being impacted heavily by climate change and the warming ocean and even there was an article that came out of the independent in uk titled fish and chips under threat from climate change so people are looking at food and how climate is is impacting it and part of a large large part of that is the ocean on the flip side you know seaweed and how that's not only currently used in food but a larger dependence on it for things like cow feed and for you know replacing things like kale and even for a carbon capture and sequestration tactic for seaweed farming like that that those were also some pretty big pieces of news in 2019 Absolutely. Yeah, there's this one article that I thought was hilarious about how they thought, or they still think, that seaweed as a food source for cows would help lower their methane emissions. And it was something about you know, seaweed lowers cow burps, and you just you know are imagining these giant cows uh, chewing on seaweed and and being all polite with their 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 gas.
1: I believe the other one you had was the Sail Drone.
0: Well, Sail Drone is a company that I've really loved for a very long time. They make this these autonomous uh, these autonomous surface ROVs and or sorry, they shouldn't be ROVs. They would be AUVs. They're not even AUVs. They're just autonomous surface vehicles that travel around the world gathering data. Most of them are solar powered, and they have this amazing map of all of the different uh, points that they have. I was able to get a tour of their facility a while back, uh, but never have been able to get them on the podcast. But um, what they did in 2019 was they actually uh, worked on a project that kind of the data they collected really supports what Bodie McBoatface was working on, where they journeyed around Antarctica and really learned a lot about what was going on with the climate indicators and climate impacts up there.
1: Yes, this was in New-, it was New Zealand, I believe. Yeah.
0: For those of you who haven't seen Sail Drones' uh, fleet, the, their robots are these really sleek designs that look super futuristic and I want to play with them really, really bad. But yeah, the cool thing is that they, they will sell their data services and rent out their robots to different companies and different government agencies throughout the world. And they do everything from like fisheries observation and data collection on things like salinity or uh, temperature or um, acidity. W- acidity all those sorts of things like you can really put in almost any type of monitor and reader that you want on these things and they just will collect the data upload it be continuously charging during the day and when you know you want them to move they'll move
1: this robot in particular made uh, a, an incredibly long journey right something over 12,000 miles
0: Yeah, and this isn't just like 12,000 miles as a crow flies. This is through choppy Antarctic water. From what I've understood, at least from what the article is telling me, it's the only scientific vehicle to have captured as detailed an environmental picture of the state of the Southern Ocean as it did. So this tool, which is, again, part of what we're covering here on Ocean Science Radio, is part of the ever-growing worldwide human fleet of tools that can help us understand our world and the impact that we're having on it. And sail drone is one of those things where it can be done autonomously through programming and make these incredible journeys that, again, as you mentioned, are, are, you know, over 12,000 miles.
1: So there is some positive stuff, for instance, uh, CITES, which is the convention on international trade of endangered species, and of wild flora and fauna, abbreviated CITES, and often just referred to as CITES because that's a mouthful. Basically this is the one governmental body, international convention, that deals with trade of wildlife internationally. And there's a couple different listings on it, so certain species can be listed as for import and export only, and you can put restrictions on that. And it's one of the few that actually has repercussions, so countries that have agreed to this There's repercussions if they don't follow through. And this past year, several new shark and ray species were added to the CITES listings, meaning there are increasing protections and restrictions on the trade of these organisms. So essentially, these make them more difficult to trade internationally, which should hopefully reduce the number of catchings and exploitations of these organisms.
0: Well, so let's say that I am a, you know, no good species trader that goes out there and you know captures some of these species uh, to try and trade them on, on the open or black market, if I get caught, what happens to me?
1: Well, that would depend on the country that you were in. But what happens is basically you cannot legally import or export these products now without special dispensation. So for instance, Mako sharks, which have now been added to Appendix 2, This means that the export of any products using Mako shark would be prohibited unless the local fishing can shown to be sustainable, or basically you have a scientific permit for this or something, some kind of exemption from this. But basically there's no commercial export of these products in between countries.
0: There seems to be a lot of news that came out in 2019 surrounding international work on protection of species and protection of spaces. Like in 2019, there was a draft of this high seas governance accord, and the, that the UN put out all around overfishing, bycatch, and you know just general treatment of the ocean, including climate change. And it was this draft treaty that they released in November. Now, originally they were planning on you know finishing up the negotiations uh, this spring of this year, but of course. The world being what it is, things might have gone into a little bit of a topsy-turvy, so the advancements there might have taken a little bit of a backseat, but we're excited to see like how governments can overcome these barriers to making these agreements and actually come out the other side with these goals that they've put forward. So the fact that, you know, CITES was able to put these species on this list for protection seems to be that there's some momentum going and hopefully there's no way that COVID can stop them or, or hold them back. Ain't nobody going to break their stride.
1: Uh, I mean, yes, fingers crossed. So here's where I like to try to come at it from a headspace because there's a Guys, I don't know if you know, but there's a lot of bad news right now happening in the world. Uh, Just in case you weren't already (laughs) acutely aware of that. But however botched a response a government has to this, as an international community, like we as a human race, on the whole have agreed collectively to try to stop doing stuff. And even if we're not doing things well enough and we're not agreeing about things and there's a lot of nastiness by and large we are currently part of the largest halting restriction of human movement ever and we've done that to try to save lives so collectively is- as a human species that's got to tell you something about where we're at right now no matter how dark it seems that is an incredible effort
0: you know when this thing first started one of the thoughts that came to my mind was something similar to that that you know this this is a unifying human experience something that goes across country boundaries across ethnicities across religions across everyone every human being on earth in one way or another is being impacted by this and has probably changed their behaviors in one way or another for the most part as you put it you know, we've been working towards trying to protect people. And my hope is, and I know that a lot of people in the climate and science communities are hoping this as well, is that this acts as a bit of a model to say, hey, if we can come together and, and work on this thing and try and prevent this from getting any worse and able to really bring ourselves together, then we can do similar things around overfishing, around ocean acidification, around climate change, around all these different issues. And we should never allow ourselves to give up hope that it is a completely impossible task. Applause. So those were, again, just a couple of the stories and topics that we wanted to cover for World Oceans Day. I hope that people out there today are finding some way to celebrate and hopefully in a responsible and social distancing way, uh, celebrate the ocean, um, either through stories, through virtual experiences, through online events, and if you have the opportunity to actually go to the ocean and take it in and possibly clean up a little bit while you're there. And for those of you who are participating in the Black Lives Matter protests happening in the United States and around the world, We're there with you. This is another unifying experience that hopefully will lead to lasting change.
1: Be kind to yourself. Be kind to others. Thank you for listening. And thanks for thinking about our blue planet.
0: Until next time, this has been another episode of Ocean Science Radio. (laughs) Ocean Ocean Science Science Radio.
1: Radio. Fun fact, for our viewers, we never, ever have successfully done a synchronized one of those. If you hear a synchronized one of those, it has been artificially put in <laughs> by Andrew afterwards because we're such we're just so dorky that we cannot make it work.
0: I do not blame ourselves on this. I blame technology. Zoom does not allow for good synchronous audio.
1: I don't know. I think we just might be awkward human beings.
0: <laughs> I'm not saying... I don't think the two are mutually exclusive, but... Fair. But yeah, I will say that, uh, you know, I think that until we are able to do it together in person, we're not going to get, you know, a natural groove of that. Because
1: test this one day when we actually are face to face with each other. All right. We'll have to try it. And if we can get it to work, (laughs) then my hypothesis has been supported, which is we're just dorks.
0: Well, like any any hypothesis, it requires good testing. Um, Yes.
1: Perfectly run the scientific method. All right. (laughs)